0: Yesteryear Who
2: Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo just doesn't want to do anything. It doesn't want to have any fun whatsoever, just wants to sit down in its penthouse apartment with its lovely new wife and its awesome terrier dog. But there is a mystery afoot, and gosh darn it, we're being pulled into yet another detective story, yet another mystery. And what better way to do that than with the ever-lovable Nick and Nora Charles as we dive into 1934's The Thin Man. See the show, stay behind for a discussion to the like the earbuds.
0: What happened if it isn't Philo Vance? I beg your pardon. Who said that? I haven't seen you since you solved the Kettle murder case. How are you? Well, for the love of Nick Charles, what are you doing up there? Impersonating a book cover? Shh! I'm working on a case. Don't tell me you've gone back to detective work. I thought you had turned respectable. Didn't you get married? Oh, didn't I? Vance, I married a girl in a million. Hmm. I heard it was a girl uh, with a million. Well, same thing. I've become a California gentleman. I never heard of such a thing. What are you doing here in New York? Well, it seems that Clark Gable is making some personal appearances here, which uh, interests my wife. And there's a very good bar, the Ritz, which is all right with me. So we popped into town to play. But would you believe it, before you could say Metro-Golden-Mare, I stepped right into the middle of a baffling murder mystery, and they put me to work. Well, you poor fellow, you have my deepest sympathy. I can use it. Believe me, Vance, this case is a toughie. It all revolves about a tall, thin man. I was standing at the bar of the Ritz one day, uh, reaching for an olive, when a very pretty girl suddenly popped up in front of me and said, uh, Hello there. Hello.
3: Uh,
0: another glass. How are you?
3: You know, we do know each other.
0: Mm, certainly, we've known each other for years.
3: Aren't you Nick Charles?
0: Huh? Yeah.
3: You don't remember me. I'm Dorothy Winant.
0: How is your father?
3: Oh, that's what I came to ask you. He's disappeared. Chris, what are you going to do? That's
0: what I said I'd do.
3: Chris, you wouldn't
0: do that. <coughs> Nicky, automatically is, Nicky, put uh,
3: Asta in here
0: with and <laughs> I. Oh, yeah? That
3: knife's missing. I'll look for it in your back.
0: It's about Julia Wolfe. Did you kill her? Gilbert? Oh, why not? You had a perfectly good motive. Oh,
3: would you like to have a couple of little murderers for your children?
0: And maybe I haven't been on a merry-go-round since that day. Are you uh, anywhere near a solution? Between you and me, I think so. I got all the suspects together at a dinner party. Then I pulled a fast one. I told them, and the murderer is right here in this room tonight. He's sitting here at this table. Are you uh, sure that the murderer is one of that group? Not absolutely. But I know where to find out. Where? Right in there. Now, you watch me. I'm going to dissolve slowly into this book. And if you'll stand by, I'll give you the answer.
2: Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1934, the world of cinema was introduced to Nick and Nora Charles, a screwball detective couple that literally changed the landscape of both the mystery film and the comedy film. But this film carries with it much more than just lighthearted fare. It also contains noir elements, pre-noir elements that would lead the path down the way for Billy Wilder to take that mantle and make it masterful. Additionally, it allowed people to experience the power of chemistry within the frame. I speak of course of William Powell and Myrna Loy. Well, and Skippy the dog too, but let's face it, he's not really part of the chemistry effort. But just how does the thin man influence the world of cinema then and today, and what lessons can we take away from it? To answer that, we need a powerful actress with a powerful voice and a powerful command of the room. At present, she is working with the No Soap radio crew and working hard on Wednesday Night Cabaret, but more importantly, she is a fan of Golden Age Hollywood, these these era-defining films that have changed the landscape for years to come. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Victoria Gordon. (laughs) I had a little (laughs) Nick Charles there (laughs) welcome Victoria
1: hey thanks for having me
2: (laughs) wonderful Uh, you um, you are fulfilling a dream I have wanted to talk about these films for a while uh, and uh, it seemed like in the first year it might have happened but then other other priorities got in the way but I'm um, so glad that you like rose, raised your hand when we were chatting with the No Soap Radio crew and said, "I'll do it." <laughs> um, so, uh, but I want to, I want people to get to know you. You have a very interesting lineage, not the least of which your your talent behind No Soap Radio. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna spill the beans here now. You, you have a very, very, very cool grandfather. <laughs> And oh yeah, that one that our audience will enjoy. Would you mind telling them about him a little bit?
1: Oh, of course. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather was Al Gordon. And mm-hmm. you may not know his name if you do more power to you, but he was a writer. He wrote for 45 straight seasons across radio and television. Mm-hmm. He was best known for being one of Jack Benny's young writers. Um, so he and Hal Goldman were the new guys in really the 40s. They were mm-hmm. new back then, I guess. But um, Al worked with, Jack, he worked on Carol Burnett, he did Tony Orlando Three's Company, he touched basically everything in early television from sitcoms to variety television. Um, He had a really cool career, and I'm honored to be his granddaughter.
2: Yeah, and it's not like, but one of the things that was fun about this is like, when we first met, like, that was just an amazing tidbit, but then to get to see you work as an actress with material that your grandfather would have handled and then material that has nothing to do with your grandfather, uh, was a lot of fun for me as a spectator of it because we both work in it and my acting duties kind of run the high and low gamut. Cause I just like watching this stuff unfold, but you, you put so much into a performance through zoom that it's just remarkable to kind of watch you perform with this kind of older material. And you, I can tell that every person in that group has an intrinsic sense of how to present that material. And I like seeing you do some of the side characters in Jack's work a lot, like the old lady, um, and stuff in TWA. It was, that was a treat because I'm like, if, if they can get me in that mode of feeling like I'm listening to the show, it has completely succeeded. Um, and like we, we, we did Armist Brooks recently, and I I appreciate that people have enjoyed what I did, but I liked your Harriet because you you gave Gloria McMillan energy to it, and we've talked about Gloria on that sh- on this show several times in regards to her legacy with radio. You gave that energy what it needed, and Gloria McMillan's character on Armist Brooks is can be the most forgotten, but she brings honestly some of the best like straight man material for Walter and uh Connie Brooks to deal with so I think you gave it the exact energy it needed um but I want to know a little bit more what you do outside of rate of these radio recreations um I w- when doing research and looking through your website I noticed something about Wednesday Night Cabaret which immediately set my my mind ablaze can you tell the audience about Wednesday Night Cabaret what is this all about
1: Oh my god okay well i know that a lot of this audience is a fan of golden age material specifically film but i grew up sort of straddling both loving film and tv but really loving theater and wanting Mm -hmm. to star in one of those old school theatrical productions um as i've gotten older really it's leaned more towards sondheim which isn't old but it's older i don't go for the contemporary as much and i discovered at a certain point that a great way to showcase my personality and my singing was to do cabaret which no one my age does so I started doing it originally in person, then of course COVID and I went online and for the last almost year, I've been doing Wednesday night cabaret. I was doing too many shows a week. I, there were weeks I was doing nine shows a week online and that was, I never had a social life and people were starting to go out <laughs> again. And I thought I should go out again too and like see other people in person. So I transitioned to doing more of the online, like weekly or monthly depending. And Wednesday night cabaret is part of that. So I do my usual. Song and story routine, which is sort of the hallmark of classic cabaret, each show is different. I don't repeat shows. I do have one song that I always sing, my little finale, but um, that might even be changing because I sing just, just throw it out there. I sing the party's over, from bells are ringing. and someone <laughs> told me that was a depressing way to end my happy show. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I can do better than that. I'll think of something else.
2: You mentioned you mentioned Sondheim, Why don't you just do one of the middle numbers from Sweeney Todd? Just end it on a creepy note. <laughs>
1: You know, I've actually done now, I think, four separate Sondheim shows. My very first online show was a Sondheim show because I was supposed to do a Sondheim 90th birthday show on his 90th birthday his 90th birthday was March 22nd, 2020. Think back to where you were. The answer was home. So I did an online show for that. <laughs> I did another online show after he died. I did an in-person show. that was. I've done a couple in-person Sondheim shows. I've done a lot of so- all Sondheim shows. And um, <laughs> I've ended them with Move On and Anyone Can Whistle. There, There's a lot of good... Actually, Sondheim has some wonderful finales. But apparently, The Party's Over was just mm-hmm. too much of a downer. <laughs> what can I say?
2: Well, I, I, I appreciate that love of theater. It's something that I... I connected with a lot in high school, but I, but cinema kind of took over my interest point. But I remember like really, there was a period where I got very much into musical theater. So I appreciated watching the Wednesday Night Cabaret video that was on the website and just kind of watching some, some of what you do because it, it, there's a part of me that really wants to start going back to live shows because like I, I I miss the energy. I really do. Like there's something that not even going into a movie theater is going to give you. Um, and I loved perform I loved working on musicals in high school. Those were a lot of fun because it just there were so many different moving parts, so many different things going on behind the scenes that just watching people rehearse and whatnot. like like I have never felt that same adrenaline before. It's a different type of adrenaline than if I'm like working on a film or working on a podcast. it's it's something entirely different. I I do want to find out though from you with that love of musicals did did you, because you're a new guest, we try to find out the Golden Age Hollywood origin story. Where did you Where did you start watching this stuff? Were musicals a part of that, or did you get into Golden Age Hollywood any other way?
1: Well, of course, I saw Singing in the Rain for the first time as a very young kid, and that's one of those gateway movies. If you have someone mm-hmm. who says, I do not like old movies, sit them down in front of that, and I promise you'll change their <laughs> mind. But I think it comes from my family watched a lot of TCM and TV Land when I was growing up. And when I was growing up, TV land was only old TV and TCM was obviously, I mean, TCM is an institution. And I think those of us, those who are listening Mm -hmm. don't know this, but Zach and I have discussed offline. um, Basically, TCM is a cultural (laughs) institution in the United States and beyond. So,
2: yeah, and it shouldn't be allowed to fail. No, it
1: should not. And really, it should be given (laughs) respect and treated like the. I mean, really, TCM is the most accessible way to put film in front of an audience.
2: It's more important than the DC universe hands down. Oh,
1: God, I I gotta be honest with you. I read someone online recently say, can DC just accept they're not getting a universe? Like, it's just, it's not, like, stop trying to make the (laughs) DC universe happen. It's not going to happen. Like, I appreciate the effort, but as we're looking, I mean, audiences can see Marvel is not doing what it used to do. I mean, it's just not. No. I don't know why DC's solution to Marvel is kind of on its decline Is well. We can swoop in. It's no people are sick of the hero stuff. And I I appreciate there will always be an audience that will love superheroes. And I appreciate superhero movies, but it, we're seeing a shift. I mean, this summer, the biggest mm-hmm. movies were not superhero movies, unless you want to call Mario, which is still the top grossing movie of the year, some kind of superhero, which if you want to call Mario a superhero, uh, I'll take Mario as a superhero. Yeah,
2: that's completely fair. I I looked at that as like, wow, cool. An animated film made a billion dollars. That's I know. awesome. Like, it, and, it, and it is a good movie. I did enjoy it the hell out of it. But I get what you're saying, like with the T TC- and TCM being a cultural high spot for you. And we talked about this, like it, TCM was something that I had on like in sporadicness. I collected, I collect DVDs as evidenced by the, <laughs> the, the mish, the mishmash shelf yeah. back here. But, um, but, but TCM was instrumental for films, kind of like what we're talking about today, but even like ones that I never thought I would come across. The two big ones are brother orchid and imitation of life. The mm-hmm. original um, Louise Beaver's version. And those are ones that got me very like, Further invested in Golden Age Hollywood, despite just buying DVDs like there was a great instant access almost like if something's on, just keep watching it. Like it doesn't matter if you st- started it at the beginning. And I like that you have that in your blood and that that you like found it at an early age, I think is is key, because I think if you find it in an early age, it just sticks with you no matter how long you live. Um, and did it. Did it, did it continue all the way through or did you have a kind of a break period where you weren't as invested in it or is it just kind of always been there?
1: Well, it's always been there in the background. For me, TV was such a huge thing. And I think even to this day, TV in general is kind of my milieu. Like, I really am into TV history. I still love film, of course. Mm-hmm. So I think it's always been there. I think there are times where I've been more interested in film than TV. Very few Mm -hmm. times. Really, it's generally TV for me Um, and I love. But the truth is, I just think there's such a rich history and I'm a native Angelino. That's probably not something I don't think we've said that yet. I'm a native of Los Angeles. So this is kind of the story of my town. And this is a story of how my town went from being this little dusty West community to what it is today, which is one of the biggest economic centers in the world. Strike notwithstanding, but yeah,
2: (laughs) who'd have thought that a lonely orange grove would turn into a mass production? Well, I'll tell you,
1: they did not plan it. And I say this as a firm lover of my hometown. We do not have the urban planning or anything like that. Or if you've seen Chinatown, Mm. it's it's not fully getting us there. Um. So yeah, it's they they weren't planning on this, but hey, we're here, we're doing it, Mm -hmm. we're striking. It is hot strike summer here in LA, and I don't know when you're listening to this, but as of when we're recording, it is still hot strike summer, and Yeah, Yeah. it's just, but it is the origins of my town and how this became what it is. So in addition to being history of society and history of culture, it really is history of my community, which is kind of a cool, it's kind Mm -hmm. of a cool bonus for me.
2: I like that you have that connection with community and this, and the, this era of film that we're talking about today is very intrinsically attached to the community and how it birthed itself. And I, I love that you have that appreciation because not everybody does, especially if they're if they're native or even if they're coming out there to make it to make their way in hollywood like not everybody fully appreciates that history i went to i took a quick trip to la um in february um to uh meet with a friend but also to visit jack's grave and i was driving to my friend's meetup and i went down hollywood and vine to the amoeba records um the new location Uh, And I just liked looking at the Chinese theater again. I liked looking at the old hotels like it. It was not as stressful a drive as I was planning it to be. Uh, And in fact, it was nice to just walk around and look at stuff for like 15 minutes before I went to Amoeba and dug into the DVD pile. Um, There is such a rich history of it. And this film that we're talking about today, I think, is a testament to star power and what fueled that town back in that day, if not the glitz and glamor of those movies? And the stars. seedy side, which this um, film
1: also manages to remind us forever. Mm-hmm. For all the glitz and glamor, there is a seedy side too. And definitely in the book, a lot more than in the movie, I think it reminds us of that.
2: Well, yeah, Dashiell Hammett. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like learning about the history of that man. And if for people who want for, further extrapolation, I've talked about Secret History of Hollywood If you're a patron, he is doing a thin series. He is on part one right now, and it is Dashiell Hammett City. That man had a very interesting life. Actually, a lot of it related to strikes, like him becoming a Pinkerton detective, put him at odds with people on strike um, in different capacities. And then where he took all that information and stuffed it into novels. Um, But he he lays the groundwork for something very interesting. But I. Before we get into it, what is your history with The Thin Man? Did you find these early on or is this a later in life discovery?
1: Okay, this is kind of a weird trivia nugget. Do you remember in about 2010 or 2011, Johnny Depp announced that he was going to remake <laughs> The Thin Man and he wanted, I think-
2: That was going to come up? Yeah, he,
1: I think he wanted Emma Stone to play Nora Charles. It was it was the kind of casting mm-hmm. between Johnny Depp and Emma Stone where if you like squint the right way, you can kind of see it. And sort of make it happen. And at the time, I was like, well, so why are people upset about this? What's the problem here?
2: I do remember that announcement. And I had watched The Thin Man before, but I rewatched it after hearing that news, finally picked it up on DVD. And the I, I sort of saw it. I I wasn't necessarily in favor of it so much as I saw it. I understood why they would tap him to do it. I didn't know if it would work because I didn't know if that screwball banter was something people still wanted anymore. That was my impression.
1: I think it could be something the audience wants. I think the challenge is you have these two stars. I mean, if anyone's at all familiar with The Thin Man or any of The Thin Man films, it's very hard to want to see somebody else in those roles. And I say this as somebody Mm -hmm. who is a big fan of the book. And there's really only one book. I think there has been a subsequent book that was, like, licensed –
2: It's, it's, there's an unofficial one too, like a prequel. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's not the same though. I I reread the thin man like every couple of years. It's one of those books. I just, it's a very quick read. If you haven't read it, I've read it many times. And I feel like when you first read it, you might think, oh, it could be this actor. It could be that actor. And if you're just adapting the book, I guess you could make it work, but Knowing about the William Powell, Myrna Loy situation and just how influential they were, it's very hard for me to feel like, yay, there's a remake. In fact, there's a musical, tying it back to theater, there was a musical, Nick and Nora, that did not follow the plot of The Thin Man at all. And actually, it introduced marital strife for Nick and Nora, which I've always been like, no, no, Nick and Nora are like the couple, (laughs) like, They're like the Mary Sue couple. They're, like, they're, no.
2: They're the ideal well, couple. Like, they're the the exemplar of well, marriage. Well, they are what I
1: think Dashiell Hammond dreamed that he and Lillian Hellman could be if they could, like, get their acts yeah. together and stop drinking or learn to not get any effects of alcohol and, you know, have tons of money and fancy situations. I think that was kind of his ideal world. Yeah. But no, there's no reason to remake the film. And there's no reason to start a new Thin Man cinematic universe, like, (laughs) please no.
2: I would love, given the characters we'll talk about, I would... To- totally sit down for a television series dedicated to studying Gilbert. Oh, God. Uh, that would be that- an interesting <laughs> television show.
1: <laughs> that family is messed up. I got to say, like, we're talking about dysfunctional families. Oh, man, oh, man. That is one dysfunctional family.
2: You, you know, for context, we did my, my Man Godfrey early on in the in the history of this show, and, and that's a dysfunctional family. Um, but you sympathize with them far more than the Sin Man family, hands down. Like... For all the issues that, that that the Godfrey family has, there is a plethora of problems with the Wynette family. Um, and I I think it's, I think I like what you're talking about in terms of like, it's hard to see anybody else in that role. Not that I'm opposed to remakes. In fact, the best adaptation of a Ham, Hammett book is a remake of a remake. <laughs> um, so it, it's the third outing, essentially. I think that the problem with The Thin Man is, as you say, it's that these two actors are so indelibly tied to that legacy. Like, it is is very difficult to not so much accept it, but enjoy yourself. I think that part of it, it might be enjoying yourself. And that's not to discourage anybody from trying to do it. If you do it, just have fun with it. Have as much fun as they had, because there isn't a lot of production history about this film, because it seems like it was a pretty standard shoot. However, there are tidbits of it, but one of the constants is that they just seem to have fun on set. Um, and everybody kind of just enjoyed each other's company, more or less. I think the only person that had any grudges about anything is Louis B. Mayer, and we'll talk about that story in a second because he initially did not want Myrna Loy in this film.
1: Well, and I did read, actually, if you want to talk about on-set grievances, um, I did read that Skippy bit mm. Myrna Loy after some take, and I was like, yeah, that's an on-set grievance, not that, I mean, Skippy... Is a key character, and yeah, I don't want to think my co-stars are going to bite me if I go to set.
2: Well, Skippy is a diva. I was talking to my friend Ryan about it. We love Skippy because of the Awful Truth as well, and yeah, he's a he's a bit of a diva, that's for sure. Um, he he's not the f- only dog they use for Asta, but he does some of the best Asta stuff in this first. Movie. Oh yeah, because he's he's far less gag based and he's a lot more reactive to Nick and Norris shenanigans. He
1: was a method dog actor. Is that what you're getting at?
2: More or less, yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs>
2: but I will say that learning about where Powell and Loy came from to get to this point was probably even more fascinating than the journey to this film period. Like there's, th- th- Powell and Loy very much start out in villain roles. Um, they both have a trajectory of playing more villainous characters. Loy, we have talked about before with two silent films where we saw her in those CD roles. We saw her as a showgirl with a high opinion of romance in The Jazz Singer, and we saw her as uh, another chorus girl of sorts in (laughs) Noah's Ark from 1928. Um, And of all the people talking in Noah's Ark, she's the only one that has any charisma in that movie, period. Powell had that similar trajectory. In fact, he was in one of the earliest Sherlock Holmes films as an assistant to Moriarty. So not even Moriarty, the assistant to Moriarty. Um, But he, he found his stride primarily at Warner Brothers, and he had played another detective character prior to Nick Charles. He played Philo Vance. And... I was very ignorant on the Philo Vance series until this year. The only one that I knew about was one he is not in, which is the Gracie Allen mm. murder case. But the Philo Vance, I sat down with the Kettle, uh, the the Kettle murder, uh, murder, um, the the Kettle case murder, and Philo Vance is not as interesting as Nick Charles. He is a fun detective character. But Philo Vance is ready to go. He is willing to drop a vacation to go help solve a mystery. He's willing to put down a book to solve a mystery. Nick Charles could give less than two fucks about solving a mystery. And I think that's what makes him a better character by all imagination and conception. He just doesn't he is being inconvenienced (laughs) by murder.
1: He is. And I think it's so funny how she's like, oh, come on, this is going to be fun. Let's do this. And he just keeps saying, but we're on vacation. Yeah. No, I'm like, there's a a dead person. I I don't know. I've always found him to be a really interesting character, Nick Charles, because he's such a reluctant, you know, they talk about reluctant heroes. He's such a reluctant hero. He's basically Mm -hmm. dragged across the finish line at a certain point. He's like, okay, fine. Just let me figure out how this ends. And then please, I'm going back to my vacation and my drinks and my wife. And I don't want to hear any more about any dead people. If somebody dies, like (laughs) that's on you. But I think it's interesting. You bring up the villain thing because after you mentioned that to me, I was thinking about it and really, Given who Nick and Nora are and the way they are presented as characters, I think it would have been weird to have your conventional, like, ingenue and dashing leading man take on those two. Well, first off, Nick should never be a dashing leading man based on the books. Honestly, (laughs) William Powell is, like, way too good looking. He's kind of a wreck,
2: but (laughs) but that's a character. Yeah, he's like this
1: old, not old, but he's older. He's married to this much younger woman. He does not care. Like, his does not care attitude applies to his entire life. Mm -hmm. But I think having them come from the sort of world of villains and the sort of, you know, wittier sharper more sophisticated world than like you could not have taken an actress who was playing farm girls who fallen backwards into marrying princes or something you Mm -hmm. had to have somebody with that villain background and in the case of nick charles you had to have somebody who had just endless charisma and yet at the same time didn't have to do anything to make you interested in him on screen. like he didn't have to he can't be someone who has to go save the day for you to want to root for him and i think coming from the villain world gave honestly gave Van Dyke, really just like a blank slate to mm-hmm. create interesting characters and really go for that dialogue because that was the whole thing about the movie. They didn't care as much about the story as they did about just getting those snappy lines in between Nick and Nora. So I think that was a good call.
2: And that there is a unconfirmed story of production. And what I mean by unconfirmed is I found it while doing research, but I could not find a source of like, what book did it come from? I don't not believe it, but I want to stress up front that there is no cited source for this. But there is a story about That first scene with the cocktail shaker where (laughs) they are essentially like they are planning to film. And he says, just run through the scene while I check on lights and sound. And he had James Wong, Howe, the cinematographer, by the way, one of the earliest Asian American cinematographers, uh, he um, he had him do it the camera was rolling and it's that wonderful trick of don't tell the actor you're filming. Um, and they got, they got what they wanted out of it. And he said, perfect. We're moving on because one take Van Dyke (laughs) is, uh, is quite a treasure. And that might sound like a detrimental quality given the way we'll make fun of Clint Eastwood from time to time, (laughs) but props to both of them. They figure they know what they want. They are not here to be choosy. They're ready to just shoot. And given the production schedule on this, they needed to hurry up because this was only an 18, 16 to 18 day shoot, depending on who's telling the story. Um, And I think a lot of that had to do with Myrna Loy's involvement in the film. Um, uh, This is coming from Myrna Loy's memoir. I want to read this real quick for you guys out there and for Victoria. Woody sent a script based on Dashiell Hammett's best-selling novel, The Thin Man, which Alexander Wolcott had called the best detective story yet written in America. Um, and this is the same man who brought the world's attention to the Marx Brothers with Alsatias, so he knows what he's talking about. Okay. Um, I loved it, and it's prospect of a Riddy role for the first time since Love Me Tonight. I'd fired an occasional quip, but my roles had been very straight up to that point. When I discussed it with Woody, however, a problem had developed. Mayer considered me wrong for the part. Powell can play the detective. He's played Philo Vance already. Yeah, that's okay, but I don't want Myrna in the picture. There was no precedent for casting me. Oh, they had a terrible battle. She's all right, Woody insisted. I've pushed her in my pool, which he had. That was his test, and apparently I'd passed, which... It wasn't. Yeah, he, he shoved her into a pool. Oh God! Not a great story, but okay, no. whatever. That's um, not the most abrasive story I've heard throughout the show's history. True. Um, when Woody threatened to walk out, Mayor re- relented, but not without conditions. Woody could have had could have me if he finished the Thin Man in time to start. A uh, Istanbul quest in three weeks. Perhaps he expected Woody to back down because it took two months, six weeks at the very least, to bring in a picture like this. Woody showed him. He finished the Thin Man in sixteen days with two days for retakes. So basically, Woody Van Dyke went, "Look, motherfucker, I don't need to be here. <laughs> you take, you take, you take, Loy." or I take my ass over to Jack Warner or to <laughs> Carl Limley, whoever. <laughs> I love that gumption. And I love anybody who can stand up to Louis B. Mayer. Cause out of all the studio chiefs we talk about, he is my least favorite human He's, being. Yeah. yeah.
1: He was definitely, I'll say a larger than life presence and leave it there. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you have to wonder who was he thinking of? And also, I mean, I hate to get crass about it, but, like, which actresses was he sleeping with at that point? Like, who do you think? I mean, I can't even imagine who he was trying to
2: push into the role. Like, yeah, that's that's when I don't fully understand, like, who else would it have been? Would it have been like a new ingenue? Would it have been somebody else? Could it even have been Carol Lombard at that point? I was going to say,
1: but wouldn't Carol Lombard, I was thinking about Carol Lombard specifically because I was thinking about 20th century, but wouldn't she have been even as young as Nora is a little too young at that point?
2: I think so. Um, and I feel like the difference between Lombard and Loy is that Loy, Lombard, I think, carries sophistication, but I don't think she carries experience that exact same way. I think the, like, of, of the Lombard films I have watched on Mass. Like the most experienced she feels for me is to be or not to be Um, like where she's like she's carrying the weight of a bunch of experience over time. Loy kind of looks like she's seen shit uh, and feels like she's sees she's seen different parts of life and she just carries more confidence in a certain respect. And she's carrying her own in a way that I don't think Lombard would have been able to do at this point because Lombard, she was working on one mode Prior to that, and then the other one, she were kind of revamped herself into this screwball comedy queen. At this time, I don't know if that's in her cards or not.
1: I don't know that it was. I was thinking about specifically Carol Lombard actually is when I thought about the other one. I thought about, but the timing wasn't obviously right. Would be Veronica Lake, but that would have been a different time period altogether. It's just at this time
2: that would have been I, in, that would have been interesting from the from what you see in, of her in uh, Sullivan's Travels. Um, and yeah. just and she does carry a lot of experience with herself in the noir films that she did with Alan Ladd. Um, I agree though, like it, but obviously it's too late of a situation. I would have thought Irene Dunn might have actually made a comparable oh. substitute, but she didn't really get her. She didn't like she she wasn't blowing up at the in as big in the same way, and she would have been at the wrong studio. Um, and in fact, like Showboats, really what pushes her like further into the stratosphere, along with Cimarron and stuff before that. But I don't think that that was screwball wasn't her shtick at that point either she didn't do like st- once she starts working with Cary Grant in the awful truth that's when she starts getting more of those roles um, and I I don't know of who anybody who could have played Powell's part either so I think it's a simple case of Woody Van Dyke made the right call and just knew intrinsically like oh God yes I don't know of any other way to explain it like part of part of this is just like kismet more than anything else it has nothing to do with like market research or like testing things out to see who likes who and whatnot like this is just now stick these two people in here and just shoot but he had a reason to feel that way because he had directed them in manhattan melodrama um Mm -hmm. which in fact there is a fun little story about uh the lineup of this which is powell's final film for warners would be shot in February of 1934, but it would not be released until after Manhattan Melody, Manhattan Melodrama, and The Thin Man were already in theaters. Um, oh, wow. So they took their sweet ass time editing that. <laughs> Around the time for uh, a lot the time, the prep for a loan out to Warner's um, or to MGM for The Thin Man, the production delays of The Thin Man allowed David O. Selznick to scoop him up for Manhattan melodrama, which would be f- his first outing with Loy, along with a slew of other uh, noted actors like Clark Gable. Um, but uh, that outing and their interaction is their real first connective tissue together. Um, mm-hmm. And that and all it took for Powell to finally break free from Warner's was a $16,330 check uh, to Warner's to buy him out. So... I think MGM made a wise investment, <laughs> uh, to say the absolute least. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, but when they get this film underway, uh, actually, a lot of the stories about filming really come from Loy herself. Um, her memoir is incredible to read. She is very, very candid. She is not afraid to to uh, give some honesty uh, in a way that I don't feel every Hollywood memoir from people in that time seem to for context, Bessie loves is very, it thinks it's smart. It's not as smart as she (laughs) thinks she is. Um, But I love that Loy had a little bit about filming her entrance. She said, I was supposed to stroll in looking very, uh, very chic loaded down with packages and leading Asta on a leash. Can you fall? Woody asked, do you know how to do a fall? I said, I've never worked for max Senate, but I'm a dancer. I think I can do it. I would have done anything for Woody because I was devoted to him. You just trip yourself, he explained, and then you go right down. He put a camera on the floor, a mark where he wanted me to land, and we shot it without any rehearsal. I must have been crazy. I could have killed myself, but my dance training paid off. I dashed in with Asta and all those packages, tripped myself and went down, slid across the floor, and hit the mark with my chin. It was absolutely incredible. You don't see that in the final film like you see a good no. chunk of it but the yeah having your chin hit the floor that gave me the shakes immediately I um, know and uh the she also had a little bit about the um uh, the reveal scene at the end before we get into the plot I do want to bring this up Filming went like a breeze because we loved what we were doing again another key point the only problem came when Nick Charles discloses who killed uh who who killed Cock Robin? As she points out to it in the in the book. Poor Bill complained loudly that he had to learn so many lines while I just gave him those knowing Nora Charles looks every now and then. <laughs> Everybody sat down for a long dinner table, waiters served oysters on the half shell, and Bill began unraveling the plot. After a valiant try, he groaned, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> But Woody didn't care as long as it kept moving. So we'd begin again and those oysters would reappear. They wouldn't bring out fresh runs, and under the lights, as shooting went on, they began to putrefy. By the time we had finished that scene, nobody wanted to see another oyster. (laughs) I think that's my favorite. We were doing this too many times story I've ever heard. (laughs) Like, because set food, like you've been on a set, like, and I've given out set food when directing. Yeah. The, you, are, you are you. I've made like um, the last short film that I did. There was enchiladas and I had to f- ba- bake like five of them because I'm like, I don't know how many takes we <laughs> need. So we're baking five sets of enchiladas here. Um, but that that if it sits out for too long under any form of light, I don't care how hot it is, but especially an MGM light man i'm i'm gonna be puking in the bathroom later on (laughs) yeah
1: no no that's the thing is there's that but also honestly the thing that's so hard to conceptualize as a contemporary audience member is when we think of book to film adaptations today Mm -hmm. we think about the book comes out it's probably already been purchased by the time it comes out but it takes time to get from book to script to film it is expected if not required that the actors read the book the timeline on this was so tight because they Mm -hmm. Bought. I believe the film rights were purchased before the book came out. And the timing was such that I'm not convinced the actors read the book.
2: Probably not. You're not far yeah. off. They they had technically the book was issued through Red Book um, as like publication through Red oh. Book in December of 33. Um and then Wilcott gave his review on his radio show. The film um Film Daily cited that the novel was acquired on the 24th of January in 34, but Film Daily, and I've noticed this on Variety as well when doing Jack Benny research, sometimes they get a story a couple days late. So it's not out of reason. But I don't think even with that, I you, I agree with you. They probably didn't have time to read this book. All they could do was rely on a script by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. And Albert Hackett had a great thing to say about the writing process. Neither of us had ever read a mystery story, so we didn't know what to do. And Van Dyke said, I don't care anything about the mystery stuff, just give me dive scenes between Nick and Nora. Forget about the mystery, let that come in when you want.
1: Which you got to love considering (laughs) that it is a mystery film. You got to love that they're like, oh, mystery. Don't worry about the mystery. We'll get to it. Don't worry.
2: We can jump into the plot on that front because I I told you that the plot description would not be that hard to do. Basically, we are dealing with Clyde Wynette, a scientist who finds out that his daughter is about to get married, uh, Dorothy Wynette, and he goes to collect bonds that he got as a wedding present and discovers that the secretary has absconded with it and he threatens to call the cops she says she only has 25,000 of it left so he goes out to find the person who he thinks it is and we do i will point out in shot selection that shot of him walking down the street um lit to look like a thin man like that that overarching shadow fantastic it's one of the one of the things i love about the thin man is that unlike the sequels this movie does attempt to be a cd mystery story in tandem with the screwball comedy.
1: Well, and don't forget, I think it's so important. It's easy to forget. The thin man of the thin man is Wynan. It's not (laughs) Nick. So having that moment where he's actually represented as the thin man is like, Obvious, Like, not obvious, but just people forgot because they got so into it that the next movies were all called The Thin Man, too, even though they probably should have been called Nick and Nora.
2: <laughs> they definitely didn't have their marketing strategy down really quickly. They just remember, like, well, the book, the book title. Just use the book.
1: Like- Where's Greta Gerwig when you need her to come up with a cross-promotional strategy that will have everyone in the world talking about your product? Um, yeah, no. They definitely did not do any favors. And also, the other thing to keep in mind is in the book Nick is not described as a thin, dashing, debonair young man. So you're not William Powell is part of the problem as much as he's fantastic in the role him being, you know, a relatively slender man is yeah. part of the problem. Oh, and don't confuse it with slender man. That's another one. <laughs> not the slender man. It's the thin man. But, I would, um, I would yeah. totally
2: watch Nick and Nora fight the slender man, though. That'd oh, be amazing. God.
1: <laughs> Please. Let's have that movie. See, I want to see that. Not another remake of the book. I want to see...
2: Nikki. there's creepypasta out there in the city. Well, <laughs> that's fine. Just let them deal with it on their own. The guild got it. Lieutenant Guild is on the case. Oh, <laughs> like, that- Actually, by the way, there is another important factor in this story, which is... Nat Pendleton. I love Nat Pendleton when he pops up in anything. He is a great-looking lug who yes. I will always maintain is basically Josh Brolin in the 30s. Um if the if oh Avenger, my God, yes. If the Avengers was made in the 30s, he would be playing Thanos, not even a question. Um, but <laughs> he, this is one of the best roles he ever gets to play, which is Lieutenant Guild for these movies. And he is... He's not stupid, which is what I love about the character. Guild is not a stupid character. No. He's just behind. He's kind of like Inspector Lestrade in Sherlock Holmes. He knows what's going on, but he's he's not as smart as Nick Charles. So he's going to be a couple steps behind, and he, like any cop, believes he knows what he is after. It's similar to Barton McLean in the Torchy Blaine series um, with Glenda Farrell. You know, Steve has the right idea, but Torchy's like about two steps ahead of him. Um, yeah. And, but that guild comes into play a little bit later on, but when Wynick goes missing, that's when we really start getting the Nick and Nick and Nora scenes. That entrance about doing different dances for different uh, drinks is the best introduction to a character you could ask for. You
3: see, the important thing is the rhythm. You always have rhythm and you're shaking a uh, Manhattan, you shake to Foxtrot. A uh, Bronx to uh, Two
2: Step time. A dry martini, you always shake to Waltz time. And Nora falling down is not the greatest entrance, but for how screwy their relationship feels on the surface, uh, it kind of works. I
3: have to do. I'm not making these babies. Oh! Well, you heard, but am madam no. <laughs> women and children first boys <laughs> so what is the score anyway oh so it's you he was out here <laughs> hello sugar he's dragged me into every gym mill on the block yeah i had him out this morning oh, i thought so oh uh, uh this is tommy uh, my wife how, are you, tommy? how do you do tell me i don't usually look like this i've been christmas shopping madam i'm
2: afraid we shall take the dog out oh it's all, a... all right
3: joe it's all right it's my dog
2: and uh, uh, my
3: wife well, you might have mentioned me first on the billing.
2: Like, everything's kind of like... They don't look like they would be built to solve a mystery. Certainly not Nick, because it looks like he's about two steps away from falling down. Yeah. <laughs> but the, that first scene, when they are chatting over the table to each other after Dorothy leaves uh, the club, because Dorothy's family knows Nick because he helped solve a mystery for his father, or for her father years ago. The Their banter in that first scene... With the whole like, who is that woman? Well, that was my that's my real daughter, you see, it was spring and I was young. Pretty girl. Yeah, she's
3: a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments to see. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice, and I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes,
2: ma'am. Hmm. That bit, like, I, I tried to write comedy scripts for a long time. And that was one that influenced a script that I had written years ago because I wanted to capture that energy. And I don't know how much of this is script versus improv because it seems like they were allowed to cut loose more or less with their banter, but it all seems so well constructed. Like from a comedy standpoint, it doesn't feel like anybody's necessarily improvising, but I think it's just because they're really good at what they're doing. Like something just clicks for them because neither was really known for comedy. Like, like up to that point, they weren't comedian or comedic performers. They were playing villains. So I, I think that like in terms of how it's constructed from the film frame on down to the dialogue is fantastic. And I love a good two shot. If I've got two people in the frame reacting to each other, I'm a happy kid like that that is just remarkable filmmaking right there
1: and to think about how quickly they got it out i mean today we have indie filmmakers who do similar things with indie type films but to put out a major studio picture with that kind of timeline and have it still be well shot well constructed you're talking about some masters of their craft here Mm -hmm. and across the board you've got a range of people who are like the top of the top of their game so it's really refreshing to see and to think about wow they really cranked that thing out Mm -hmm. at the same time you have to wonder what the heck they were doing to keep themselves cranking it out but you know what i'm not gonna go there if they didn't i'm not
2: well it's mgm so i guess it's pills Um (laughs) i would say that's a
1: good guess i I, i'm going out on a limb here and saying you're probably right oh
2: uncle louis pharmacy it's it's a one-stop shop over there on the metro lot (laughs) um yeah that's uh we have no problem shedding those stories but yeah god Damn it, Mayor! You know, I I have problems with the movie Mank in certain respects, but one thing is for certain. they The guy they got to play, Louis B. Mare, the most accurate presentation of Louis <laughs> B. Mare I've ever seen in my life, he's a piece of shit. And that scene where he's walking down the hallway, he is the exact piece of shit I imagine. And then he goes in front of that whole crowd to be like, we need to do a pay cut because of the depression and blah 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 blah. And he's just it's that it's that duality that he carries with him as Uncle Louis or Father Louis. Uh it's it's nuts. But back to the plot though, they do discover that the secretary uh for Wynet is dead, and things start unraveling to where we everybody believes that Wynet is the killer. Um, and we are introduced to the Wynette family in the process of this. Let's 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 give a little like nod to each of them. First of all, Mimi. Mimi. <laughs> this this is a character. This is a character. She's she uh she only wants money. That is not even in question. The
1: thing about Mimi is cuz if we use this as kind of sort of like a template for noir she's kind of setting up the future femme fatale but mm-hmm. she's like bad at it like she's like <laughs> not good at it she's like 10 years past her prime for that mm-hmm. and she doesn't get that like to her that has not clicked in yet she's the like Regina George's mom of this sort of setting you know i'm i'm not a real mom i'm a cool mom <laughs> a regular mom like there's something about her that like she's in competition with her daughter and like it's unintentionally such a, like you can see the trauma coming off this family. It's clearly played for slight laughs here, but when you think about it, you're like, these people have absolutely horrible lives. And yeah, I'd say Mimi is the root of a lot of
2: that. Yeah, and what's more, she's not making things any better by hanging around her boy toy, Chris Jorgensen, played by (laughs) Cesar Romero who literally just stands there, delivers one small paragraph of dialogue and is virtually not seen again for the rest of the movie. Basically, yeah, yeah that's, I, that's where he comes in. I love that moment where they're like, where Dor- uh, Dorothy, played by um, Marino Sullivan, is like, have you ever considered that Chris could, do, uh, could work for a living? And then there's this wide shot and he just gets up and he looks like the most wounded puppy ever. <laughs> 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 like, I don't need this. <laughs>
1: like... I didn't ask for these two stepchildren. I didn't.
2: <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I, all I wanted to do was con this middle-aged lady out of some money and be her. It's her, gone
1: badly. Yeah, yeah.
2: No, it's it's all things have shot down. I'm going to my first wife. Thank you very much. Um, and then, of course, there's Gilbert Wynett, played by William Henry, who... The moment I saw this film for the first time, he confused me. And to this very minute when I was at the gym re-watching this movie prior to this episode, he still confuses me. It's such a great, like... He is so centralized in his focus of what he wants. He's He almost feels like he's written by Bill Morrow and Ed Boulogne for the, from the Jack Benny program. He feels like that kind of a kooky Mr. Billingsley character.
1: I feel like the book kind of gave... And this is where books do sometimes have an advantage. There was more room to kind of talk about Gilbert around Gilbert and like get more of a sense of his character and his personality. I feel like the movie had to kind of eliminate that because it would have just been tons of exposition on like mm-hmm. why is Gilbert like this? Well look at his mom.
2: Yeah out of all the things that Woody would have wanted to take interest in he he sort of dil- he, he seems that he dilutes Gilbert to the point where he's still funny. He's a funny funny character and yeah. his <laughs> God damn it. His whole like the trouble is you've got an Oedipus complex that you just won't admit it. Now I know <laughs> yeah. I have one, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like that? Like I have a I have a rule. In Golden Age Hollywood, if you mention any type of psychology terminology, not the least of which Oedipus Complex, you need to back 500 feet up. But <laughs> in, in the case of Gilbert, I'm like, he is such a screwy character, This, and we have seen evidence of Mimi's behavior. It makes sense. Like she oh, yeah. does, u- She has Gilbert wrapped around her finger. Um, and to an extent, Dorothy is no saint either in this. She is very obsessed with her father's whereabouts, and she has a strong relationship with her father. At times, it seems a little bit too paper thin because, again, the more interesting characters in this are Nick and Nora. It is not the Wynette family per se. Um, But somehow, everybody feels fully blossomed as a result. Like, Mm -hmm. their craziness works in paper thin strokes in this script because when you're painting in those broad strokes, it makes it fun for Nick and Nora, these two, again, people who probably shouldn't be solving a mystery given their blood alcohol level. It makes it believable. It makes it believable that they would have the courage and the stamina to deal with that nonsense.
1: Well, and I think giving too much weight to, I mean, you have to have the wine family in there. And obviously I feel like Dorothy doesn't always like, she's like the one sane person in this group trying to kind of like get herself out of this absolutely crazy thing. That is her family because she's recognizing it. I don't, I've never quite understood her obsession with finding her dad I guess, you know, as somebody whose dad grew up, you know, I grew up with my dad as an active part of my life. I might not get it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it always feels like, well, he hasn't really been part of her life.
2: I think it's possible because it's Mimi because Mimi is so much of a, personality that uh that she's just like oh, No, my father's the one that i go to for advice and practical r- means of living like not not my mother no <laughs> like yeah it, yeah but i
1: think it's so huge to mention though that my not exactly it's not like he left because he was like i'm the normal guy and these people are crazy good luck he's no he's got his own quirks and he's definitely not the easiest individual to deal with either
2: no in fact when he threatens julia Initially, about like, I'm gonna, I think I know who's gonna, who's got the money. She goes, What are you gonna do to him? And he just gives this like look about him that I'm like, Oh, this is, well, this is melodramatic, but shoot, I think you might kill somebody as a result of this. Well, and that's
1: a scene that was added for the film. That's not in the book because Mm. really, he's not a character in the book. He's referenced. He's, he's already, spoiler alert, not here by the time the book starts. The
2: thin man has vanished at that point. Um, I think it's cool to give whine at that little spotlight at the beginning to kind of understand what we're dealing with. And again, I'll never, I'll never down that shot of him walking down the street. Like that's just such oh, an yeah. indelible image, but this Boily boils down to Nick and Nora, or at least Nick is not going to take this case. All right. he cares about is it's Christmas and I'm going to have a party with all my convict friends. Um, and, um, Victoria, one of the reasons I love the thin man series has to do with a very simple premise. The convicts that Nick (laughs) gets put behind bars love him so much. And like, I'm a like in my later years, I'm a big, big fan of like heartwarming material. That love between the convicts and Nick is so fucking beautiful. (laughs) Like they, he has this. Like, and they're and they range the gamut. Like, some of them are like seemingly violent, and some of them are just petty f- fucking thieves. But the one that I love the most is when that big, big guy yeah. is crying and he's like, I want to call my mom. Uh, I, I like to telephone my mother and wish her a Merry Christmas. Well, why don't you? Well,
3: I, I have got any nickels. Oh, forget the nickels. Hey, are right you ahead. Thank you. Have a hunker? i have two hunkers. Uh, give me long distance. I want to, want to talk to San Francisco. Because
2: <laughs> I know he doesn't, he's like trying to move on with the party, but it's just like he took the time to tell him, no, use my phone, please, it's Christmas. Like, there is such a heartwarming essence to these characters. And I think that I would, I'm sure I'm not wrong in saying, like, I think that's one of the reasons why you can even have them carry a series after this point. Like, Nick and Nora aren't cynical. Nick is Nick is like cynical, but it's not his overarching trait.
1: Nick is jaded. He's seen everything. So I wouldn't even go so far as to say cynical. He's just nothing's gonna surprise Nick. No. But Nora is clearly this sheltered girl who's like, this is so cool. Like she's the Mm -hmm. kind of person who'd be like, we're going to the bad part of town today. Like, we're going. You're like, no, you don't. That's not a good thing. Like, don't celebrate that. But
2: we're going to yeah. Crime Alley. Oh, my friends Thomas and Martha are with us and their little boy Bruce.
1: <laughs> and we're gonna take Daddy's limo. I mean, it's like she's she's so innocent in that way which I find so interesting because she's just she's young. She's 26. She's sheltered. Mm-hmm. She's always she comes from this wealthy family. Clearly she is a massive rebel because she's married to Nick who is anything but part of this world. <laughs> and it's just it's it's a very nice contrast. And yeah, you're right. They shouldn't be solving crimes, but it becomes obvious very quickly that they're both compassionate enough to do a good job solving crimes. Indeed. Now the fact, I will be honest with you, I do feel that it falls into their laps at times. I mean, especially Nick just seems to show up and things work out. And I'm not denying <laughs> that you, ha- I mean, for storytelling, you have to have a certain amount of that. But at the same time, he definitely does walk into a lot of like lucky moments and things where if someone else had walked in, they might've gotten it a little faster too.
2: I think that that's, that, that brings something interesting to mind in the terms of Hammett and what he was known for. Like the my favorite quote, about Hammett is, I think it's from Raymond Chandler, and they basically said like, Hammett took murder out of the drawing room and dumped it in the alley where it belonged, or crime, not murder, crime. And it's almost as if with this story, as a base concept, even if you've not read the book, the base concept is, Hammett took murder, or crime out of the drawing room, dumped it in the alley, then dusted it off slightly and put it back into the drawing room. (laughs) Like there's almost like a reversal of him. And it's so weird that his final like full novel is this kind of reversal on what he was most recognized for with a Maltese Falcon or or, or a Red Harvest. And I, I feel like, especially when it comes to Nora's perspective on it, like there is a part of it that as the series goes on, I love how they kind of they make us aware that she's kind of evolved at this point beyond that first kiss mystery in that first case. Um, and she doesn't strictly push Nick into mysteries by the series yeah. end. But yes, this excitement that she has around it is also in tandem with her trying to understand the lifestyle of her husband, because there's that point where she's on the phone in the party and she goes, no, send them all up. Yeah, I know, but they're they're all his friends. Like there's that like she's just kind of like she it's almost like she not because she's drunk, but because she's just overwhelmed. She's just like, nope, I'm I'm just assuming everybody's coming to our party today, which allows the Wynette family to come up in chunks because Dorothy comes in and tries to confess to the murder, and Nick's just like, No, (laughs) like you didn't do this at all. No, that's
1: the thing. It's this moment of like, yeah, no, nice try. Sorry, it's not going to get this solved any faster.
2: There's a great bit where he's comforting her and Nora comes in and he gives this look of, mm? and she just responds with that little nose thing that she does, like that like yeah, yeah, wiggle yeah. of the nose thing. Uh, and then Mimi comes in and he takes her into a postcode bathroom, um, which, by the way, it should be pointed out that this film is made... Like about like the real the year that the movie that the code is starting to really get its teeth.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's like right in there where I have a feeling if there had been a longer production timeline, there would have been a lot of back and forth over. Can we get away with this? I think this point they were like, let's just get away with it. Let's not waste our time.
2: There is a there the there is a there are two lines in this film that the censors strictly objected to. Um, which we'll get to one of them pretty soon here. But um, they did—they were able to pass the PCA's uh, approval process and then eventually got a certificate of approval the year later. Um, but this is when Joseph Breen is coming in. And Joseph Breen does not fuck around. He's not being paid cush money like Will Hayes was. He's actually serious. And he being part of the Catholic Legion of Decency will do that to you. And he like like that th- that bathroom aesthetic it's so weird to look at a at an art directed bathroom with no toilet
1: like i, I just know, right? it, it
2: freaks me out every time i watch this movie because it's the most obvious like Usually Warner Brothers, if they have like Joan Blondell in a bathtub, I'm not focused on the decor. I'm focused on Joan Blondell in the bathtub (laughs) because that's where the camera's focusing my attention. This one's a pretty wide shot where I'm just like, where's the toilet? (laughs) Like it's supposed to be there. No, it's true. And
1: it's like, I actually think back to on the Brady Bunch, they didn't have a toilet, the kids in the bathroom. And when they did, I doubt you saw this This isn't your thing probably, but they did an HGTV show where the six Brady kids redid the old Brady house. (laughs) <laughs> it's amazing. Were, I highly recommend looking I, for I it. I actually
2: would be down to watch that. I'm not, I don't watch the Brady Bunch as much as I did when Nick and Knight was a f- staple in the household, but I would love to watch them try to remake that house. Because oh it my has God. a very specific look about it. It screams the 70s for me.
1: No, 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 you have to watch this. They bought HGTV bought the exterior, the facade, the house that was used as the exterior house for the Brady Bunch. Yeah. And they got the six kids together. And they worked with all the HGTV personalities. The Property Brothers were there and like everyone. And they redid the house so the interior matches the (laughs) interior from the show. And the thing I remember they all called out was there is no toilet in the kid's bathroom. Mm
2: -hmm. Did they make Jan do everything, by the way?
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny, actually, because Eve Plum in her like post-Brady career is a was a design review or something like that commissioner So she actually has the understanding of some of this stuff compared to and also Christopher Knight obviously has his Christopher Knight home line. Mm -hmm. But um, no, they all contributed in different ways. It was it's worth a watch. I mean, if you've ever seen the Brady Bunch and for me going off classic film for a second into classic TV, the Brady Bunch Variety Hour is one of those shows that I just yeah, I look on your face is telling me you've seen the Brady Bunch variety hour. <laughs> I have, I
2: have. Um, like you know, it's funny. Like the Brady Bunch was cool to watch some of those figures and where they would go afterwards. Specifically, um, uh, Marshall Wallace, who played Edna Krabappel, um, on The Simpsons for so many years. Um, Wait, was she on the Brady Bunch? She was. She was on. I think one of the episodes as a teacher, and she's she's in there for a second, and there was a little uh, not TV Land Nick at Night factoid plopped up or something, going like she would go on to be in The Simpsons. I'm like, what? Mrs. Krabappel has more than one acting role <laughs> like that. Oh
1: God, does she ever. I always associate her with Bob Newhart. I wouldn't have, I didn't realize she was on the Brady Bunch. Yeah,
2: at the time I hadn't gotten into Bob Newhart, so I didn't, I didn't connect her with that. That was my initial connection to going like, Marsha Wallace has a history beyond The Simpsons. I thought she was just right. always in a voiceover booth. Like- people
1: had careers before The Simpsons came on the air. I know, it's always surprising to realize these people had full careers and they got hired to do The Simpsons. Like but, uh- uh,
2: The same is with Alex Rocco and watching The Godfather years later and going like, that's Russ Meyer, the head of Itchy and Scratchy. (laughs) (laughs) And Joe Mantegna in anything and going like, he's fat Tony. (laughs) But what
1: about, um, going back to The Simpsons, what's her name? Um, Julie Kavner. Oh, yeah. Julie Kavner. When I was watching Rhoda, I'm like, she sounds like Marge Simpson. Yeah. Oh, my God. Rhoda's sister is Marge Simpson. And I will just quickly shout out, we went to the same high school. So that's one of those, you know, high school pride.
2: Nice. But getting back to the party here. Because Gilbert comes in. And he, he, again, Gilbert doesn't miss a beat. He says to just print in the paper that his father was a sextagenarian. And (laughs) the newspaper guys go, well, we can't print that because, well, you know. And and then he goes, well, just say that he's 60. And he goes, is that what that means? And I'm like, there's little bits of the code, as we were just mentioning with the code, that they kind of work around it not in a Lubich way, but they're just very clever with their words, like very, very clever with their words. Um, and one of those comes in pretty quickly after. So basically the party continues while the Wynette family sorts out their whole affair and they end up going back home. And I love how the party just like descends into chaos and everybody's singing, uh, singing Christmas carols. While everybody's just like falling on the floor and Asta looks like he's about to die of a heart attack. Um, And And
1: Nora's response is, oh, Nikki, you know, the most interesting people. people. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. And she's she goes to she's taking they're both getting into bed later that night. And she's going like, you should take the case. And he's going like, no, darling, this is no, no, not at all. Nope, 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 nope. (laughs) Like, I'm done. I'm not a detective anymore. I'm running your father's businesses, your late father's businesses. That's it. And they, um, they come across one of the shady figures that Julia, the secretary, is involved with named Morelli. And he basically pulls a gun on him, to which Nick responds, would you please put that gun down? my wife isn't afraid, but I'm terribly frightened. <laughs> and I love her response, which is idiot. <laughs> and they get him socked out but not before Will Powell has to punch Myrna Loy in the face. I know. That always her. is one
1: of those moments. You're like, yeah, that's protection. Get yeah. yourself a man like that. Yeah, <laughs> it,
2: it is. It. I remember the first time I saw him, I'm like, oh, my God, he punched her in the face. Like, yes, it, it is to protect her. But I'm like, he punched her in the face. Um, and that's another like area in Myrna Loy's corner is like she knows like the game that she's playing, which is like I am a rough and tumble sort of gal. Despite the ignorance, Nora isn't stupid. Like she's, she's naive, but not stupid. Um, And in fact, much of her responses lay into that, especially the way she can bat back at at Nick. Um, And one of those comes up when Lieutenant Guild and the police show up to take Morelli away and to find out, are you on this case or not? Like, why does everybody keep asking me? I'm not on the case. And he goes through a different series of lines and one of the cops looks for the gun. And she goes,
3: what's that man doing in my drawers?
2: (laughs) And Nick Charles does a spit take and does this shocked look of like, oh, you said a bad word. Um, That's one of the lines that the censors objected to. Not the following line where Guild is investigating and asking them questions. And he goes, you got a pistol permit? No. Have I heard of the Sullivan Act?
3: Oh, that's all right. We're married. (laughs)
2: That that one got right past them. But drawers like that's the code is fucking stupid. They 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 literally looked at such a weird like toss off line and said that doesn't matter. But ruffling through my drawers. Oh, that's a no, no. I'm like the one the other one's worse. I don't understand the code. I never will. It is funny to think about what they approved of and didn't approve of, especially when it comes to horror films, because they let the black cat from 1934 pass with flying colors. Um, Like everything in that film is wrong. That's (laughs) Um, the
1: thing is you think about even to this day, honestly, I still don't think we have a grip on how to censor and avoid certain content. I mean, we've talked about you and I haven't, but in general, society talks about how violence can get a, You can have a horribly violent film with murder left, right, front and center mm-hmm. and have a PG-13 rating. But if somebody like even thinks about sex in the film, you're mm-hmm. getting an R rating. And it's yep. just we've never quite figured out how to balance out what people should and should not be saying. And I get why there are film ratings. I'm kind of of the attitude at a certain point that like. Given how hard it is to go to a movie today, people know what they're going to see when they go in. You you can't yeah. just walk into a theater anymore.
2: Having worked in movie theaters, I know why they have to do it because they're in a they have an alliance with the National Theater Owners Association and the MPAA, so they they do it to not run into a problem. But unrated films come out here left and there. the The way they handle Nick and Nora though is interesting because there seems to be a a, a logic of thinking that their marriage as a story point wouldn't even work either because they're very candid and they're very upfront and they don't mix mince words. Um, and in a lot of ways, like it feels like that based on what they are as a couple that the code kind of had to acquiesce to like, well, this is just part of this story Like, because they weren't impossible to work with. They would work with you on the scripts. And there's a lot of times when they would just say, you're taking the risk. It might get cut in the South. Um, and that's generally how they would just say, fuck it, we're doing it. Um, but like the way that they handle that scene in the bedroom and then the way they handle the, um, her being shoved into the cab to go to Grant's tomb and whatnot. Like there's a lot of like Nick and Nora aren't afraid to actively talk about having a sex life or, um, talking about dirty things. Like they are very much down for down to do those things in a way that, no other golden age Hollywood couple specifically in a series would ever do like Torchy Blaine and Steve are not talking about this at all when he, no. she's solving a mystery for the paper. Um, and that carries on into the scene the next day when it's Christmas day and Nick is just shooting fricking balloons with his BB gun. <laughs> and a, another character does come into the mix a couple of different times. We haven't talked about him which is Macaulay, the lawyer. Yeah. And, the first time I saw this, gave no bear or mind to Macaulay, but over the like the second time onward, I'm like everything he's doing indicates to the obvious answer. Um, yeah, he is he is not, like the when you really look at the script in like subtitle form or like just having watched it, you understand like oh he's clearly the killer. <laughs> like he's everything points to him just happening to show up, um, and that's why I think it's similar to what we were talking about. Woody didn't care about this mystery plot. Nobody did. What Woody did know how to do was how to shoot it, because as soon as they start investigating the mystery, we start getting a lot of like art direction that indicates the seedy or nature of the city. And a lot of it starts with when they go to meet Nunheim at his apartment. And we do see this kind of Bowery, Warner Brothers aesthetic and um, Nunheim for context is a guy who did witness what happened to Julia Wolf and is basically blackmailing the killer um and when Nunheim goes to collect more money he gets shot rather brutally in the middle of the street from the from an open door and it reminded me immediately of little Caesar when they kill one of the guys who wants out of the gang and they just shoot him right from a car onto yeah. some onto some footsteps um leading to city hall uh it's this film's not afraid to get intense with its subject matter. Um, I think for all that they don't care about the murder plot, they know how to insert the imagery that connotes the danger. Um, as the film series goes on, I feel like it becomes less um, necessary. Um, like the second film has moments of it, but by the third film, it's this is a comedy series at this point. This is yeah. the mysteries are a, are a side note. Um, and what, what we, end up kind of getting is that Nick just throws himself into this investigation. And I love how his reasoning for it is like, I'm tired of being pushed around. <laughs> and It's like,
1: fine, you've all convinced me. I'm doing it. I understand now. I'll,
2: I'll, I'm- I'll do it. If you shut the fuck up. <laughs> like,
1: like yeah. That. Well, and look, Nick gets, it's not like Nick just walks through this investigation. I do feel there are several very convenient things that happen for Nick in terms of solving the murder, but he does get shot. Yeah. He does get to deliver one of the most iconic lines in film. um,
2: (laughs) He didn't get anywhere near my tabloids.
1: You finished with this?
2: Yes, and I know as much about the murder as they do.
3: Oh, I'm a hero. I was shot twice in the Tribune. I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids. It's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. (laughs)
1: <laughs> which I have to say, it's a great play on the just, like, flawed grammar of I read they shot you in the tabloids. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like...
2: <laughs> and that was another line that the code objected oh, to, I by am the way, certain, which... I'm certain. Yeah. I am
1: certain that was one of those lines where they were fighting back and forth, but it was worth keeping. But yeah. at the same time, he does also recover from being shot insanely quickly. And, like, I mean, this whole story takes place over, like, several days. It's not like this is weeks or whatever. It's days. So well, to well, go from...
2: You have to remember Nick is secretly an X-Men. This is something that they didn't tell you because we haven't seen the origin issue yet.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, and that's the thing is it really is an idealized version of what Hammett could have been if he could have gotten his life together. Yeah. It is in a lot of ways, the character is very autobiographical for him. And of course he's got his sidekick, his, you know, woman with him and, they had this. My understanding is this is the kind of dialogue they actually had. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they just could not get their lives together, and somehow he still felt that making these characters crazed alcoholics who yet managed to be productive alcoholics is. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow I feel like the thing I might have cut is some of the alcohol. If I were trying to idealize my life and that was my circumstance, I might have said maybe without alcohol, these two could really just like change the world. But
2: you know, hey. it's, you know, it's funny. I've I like when I did drink and I would watch this film. I would think I could be as suave as that as I've gotten sober. It's allowed me to be far more in line with how Powell performs it. By comparison, I am not saying I'm as suave as William Powell. That's fucking impossible. But like that, that, that is one of those things of just like, if you did cut out the alcohol, yeah, like they would, they'd probably solve world hunger at that point. Like they're both very capable and dedicated in certain respects. At least Nora would be like, come on, Nikki, let's solve world hunger. No, no, I don't want to. No, just gonna sit right here and shoot balloons. Um, they, I, that, that energy and drive that Nora gives, by the way, I love that she, when she gets shoved into the cab and, <laughs> He tells her Grant's tomb <laughs> to, the, to the cab driver. Um, she calls up Guild after Nunheim escapes and is found dead and goes like, I've been doing a little bit of detective work on my own. That husband of mine thinks he's so smart. <laughs> and and it, it again, it's part of the whole relationship that they have, but he gives this knowing look of just like, oh, that's adorable. Now let me <laughs> screw with her for about five seconds. Um, and like, I love that dedication. Like she is trying to get actively involved in the mystery. Um, it's sort of like the, like it's sort of a prototype for Rear Window when Grace Kelly decides to get involved in the murder across the street. Um, oh and, yeah. And there's a dedication and drive to it, but you do see her start to dwindle in uh in curiosity and more become protective of Nick because when he goes to investigate Wynette's laboratory, which by the way is shot like a, universal horror film that isn't trying
1: <laughs> that's a good comparison yes. it,
2: like the opening shot does look like the entrance to a frankenstein movie If james whale didn't didn't give a shit and um the he is going to prepare to take asta for a walk but he's clearly got burglar's tools um at one point he she pulls a gun out of his pocket and goes what's this and he goes looks like a hold up <laughs> like, um and she starts showing genuine like don't Get killed. Like, please don't don't do this. Don't die.
3: Nick, I won't have you going down there.
2: Hey. It was you that got me into
3: this. No, well, I know, but this is different. He's a crazy man. He might kill you. He won't kill me. I've i got acid to protect me. All right. Go ahead. Go on. See if I can. But I think it's a dirty trick to bring me all the way to New York just to make a widow of me. You wouldn't be a widow long. You bet I wouldn't. You're not with all your money. Hmm. So, well, any port in a storm. Goodbye. Sugar? Nicky! Nicky! Huh? Take care of yourself. Oh, sure I will. Don't say (laughs) it like that. Say it if you meant it.
0: Well, I do believe that a woman
3: cares. I don't care. It's just that I'm used to you, that's all. if you let anything happen to him you'll never wag that tail again
2: there's something about Nora is that she shields how she actually feels through humor which i think is a yeah. very relatable thing that anybody can deal with and that's why it works well in scripts and her line is uh she goes like take care of yourself say it like you mean it. and he goes well i do believe the woman cares and she goes it's not that i've just gotten used to you that's all <laughs> <laughs> and uh and then also her threatening asta like if you let him if you let him die you're not gonna live and i'm like oh fuck the <laughs> well, stakes you know, are real I think
1: with nora as a woman and as a woman living in this sort of summer of femininity getting embraced with taylor swift and you know you and i have discussed offline taylor swift and the barbie movie and sort of this current like it's okay to be into girly things moment i feel like nora is a character who was in some ways a victim of her time. Not that Nora Mm -hmm. didn't clearly live a full, lovely life as a character, but if she had been allowed to take charge, like if she had been given the opportunity to be the main investigator or to have a career for herself, women like Nora have changed the world. And it's pretty incredible to watch and to think that Nora is pretty much relegated to the role of supportive wife, curious wife, you know. Mm-hmm. Nick gets to take the lead. I mean, admittedly, he has detective experience. I'm not denying that Nick was highly capable of doing this. No, but- I
2: did my Jedi training. I went through the courses. I met with the puppet. <laughs> like, there, you're right. There is this, like, there is a sense of, like, if if the aesthetic wasn't drawn to where she is inherited well has inherited wealth and that she and Nick are supposedly supposed to be living a docile existence... That she would have had a lot more hitch in her step to just do things for herself. And then meeting somebody like Nick would feel like meeting an equal rather than somebody who's above that line in terms of society. Um, yeah. and, and there is like there is that window of it. Like the only detriment to the series is that Nora, Nora becomes less like starts losing things bit by bit as the series goes on. She never loses the ability to entertain us, the audience. But I think that they create a more docile character over time. And part of that's because you're extending into 1947 by the time this series ends. Like they weren't just making Thin Man movies uh, together and MGM wasn't even there's a gap between the fifth and the sixth one where it feels like they just kind of like wanted to come like fulfill something in Powell's contract and Loy's contract or something at this point, because Song of the Thin Man, which is the final one, is kind of like at this point, it's just like, I'm just hanging out with friends. I really don't care what's going on. I'm just hanging out with my friends. Um,
1: Yeah, and And look, I appreciate the whole series, but I do feel that it dragged on a little longer than it should have. And I think for me, the sort of like jumping the shark moment is when they became parents. I Mm -hmm. think I get why in that time period they had to become parents. Nick and Nora, I gotta tell you, if they were contemporary people, Nora would be like, we are not having children. We, we are living our lives for ourselves and let's enjoy it. Also, so,
2: also, Nikki, we'd be arrested for child neglect. Nah, that's not true. Just hang him out on the windowsill. He'll be fine. <laughs> There's a, yeah, like, but you're right. The independence, like, they would just be like, we don't need children to fulfill our lives. We can just go have fun in life and enjoy yeah. our- semi-retirement and occasionally I might push you into a mystery, but that's about it. Um, And that, that, uh, that element of Nick's detective skills, by the way, I, the most evidence of him stumbling into things definitely happens in a certain respect with him at Wynette's building. Um, Because frankly, Asta finds the body. (laughs) Right. we're being realistic, Asta finds that body, which is why he's the best dog in cinema. Um, And, then he kind of happens to be there at the right time when tanner the somebody he put away by the way comes in to repay money that he had chiselled from winet um and this is when we kind of launch also into the other part of nick conveniently falling into things but i think it's a strength rather than a detriment the whole i I'm like i want to ask you this question do you think that this this film and this concept by sort of design is sort of acting as an anti-mystery because that's an
1: interesting thought
2: because it seems like it's not like the like there's an example i give often which is the adventures of sherlock holmes is a flawed film and this is one of my revelation it was adam roach who pointed this out in his series we as the audience know what moriarty's whole plan is from a to b in the first 15 minutes, and then we are watching Sherlock Holmes be a step behind the entire time. Yeah. Whereas he should be a step beyond the audience, and we should be Watson going, like, well, okay, now I'm discovering this right away. And Nick and Nora, because of Nick's lack of interest in telling in, in doing a mystery and engaging in the whole case period, the whole him falling into things. And consequently, how he finds out who the murderer is at the dinner, at the drawing room table. He is kind of acting under this anti-mystery theory of just like, it's more the personality of the detective than necessarily the story that's being told. And as a result, it sort of acts in like he's not an ideal detective, but he happens to be good at sussing people out. So he's not using detective skills so much as he's a good guesser. Like He could concoct a story more or less. So it's almost like in you said that autobiographical, autobiographical element of Hammett being inherent to Nick. In a way, it's a detective who is a great storyteller rather than a great detective. And so that's why I feel like it's more of an anti-mystery. I don't know, like, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think that's a crazy thought at all. I think it makes a lot of sense. I've never felt, and I say this as somebody, like I said, who reads the book every couple of years, who has seen the movie multiple times. I've never felt like for a mystery story, the mystery was really... The reason I kept watching and obviously that was the point that was what Van Dyke wanted that was what the writers wanted that was what the audience wanted because that's Mm -hmm. what kept the series going for so long but. The mystery is not that compelling. I don't have this like sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to figure out who did it kind of moment. Right, yeah. It's not even that well-constructed a mystery in the scope of things. It's really more that it's a well-constructed world and it's a well-constructed set of characters and a well-constructed story overall. And there happens to be a mystery in it. So I'm not opposed to that characterization of anti-mystery. I don't think that's entirely wrong at all. I think that's actually very logical.
2: Because that's how I kind of like, I love Knives Out, don't get me wrong, but that's how I felt about the first Knives Out in terms of a mystery. At a certain point, I know who the killer is, Yeah, but the world is so rich that I don't care and I want to watch it to the very end. The glass onion kind of threw me for a loop at first, but then I started catching up to its wavelength. But that that kind of mentality ends up being amazing for detective characters because it doesn't assume the audience is stupid. Um, in a way it does tend to engage them and make them feel as smart as the characters that they, that they are watching, which I think if you're doing Sherlock Holmes, don't do that, that, that detriments the character extensively, but Nick Charles. Yeah, I can, I can feel on a level with Nick Charles. He is so much more relatable than Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe. He, he is as much a goofball as you or I are in our real lives. Um, and that's extended to his childlike behavior with a BB gun,
1: which I think was also a scene that was caught without or not intentionally. They didn't have it scripted that way. And he just did it. And they thought it kind of suited the care. I think if I remember correctly, that was also kind of a I, I throw believe- in at the last second thing.
2: And it makes sense because it does this. The, the camera angles don't seem deliberate. They're kind of just catching him in action. Like I don't. And given the fact that Woody was just going to do one or two takes anyway, it's not like he so much planned it out so much as he just knew to keep it rolling for whatever he's going to accomplish with this BB gun. And then all you have to do is just fill it in with an insert of the the Christmas tree with all the balloons around it. Um, and he yeah. manages to catch a really good visual gag of Asta running away scared. <laughs> yeah. Like, actually, there is a great Asta moment. The, every film has a great Aston moment. For me, it is when he comes in through the door the next morning. It's Christmas. Sees that he's shooting that BB gun and just goes back in. Like yeah, he's just, like, "No, he's like, out. I'm out. Uh, no, you're, you're my dad and my mom are fucking insane." <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and let's talk a little bit about this reveal because Nick figures it out by going through the story of everything that has happened from frame one to this moment. And you were talking about things falling into his lap. This is the literal it falls in his lap moment of the movie that is so obvious. And this is a trope that would happen throughout the series where he goes through the story. He thinks he's got it. And at one point, Nora asks him, is that what really happened? I don't know. How are you sure? Because it's the only way that it makes sense.
1: if they'll they'll confess yes this is exactly how it happened if not we'll figure it out but it's kind of funny to draw a line sort of from like Poirot who definitely had a similar method of reveal and yet he knew what he was doing before he went into his reveals to Nick Charles and then I hate to draw this line because Nick deserves far better in terms of intelligence than this but all the way to Columbo where you've got the like sort of (laughs) he's a step behind but then he just catches up and figures it out so it's kind of funny to see how we've I would not say declined, but evolved in how we, ex- I mean, and of course we've evolved far beyond Columbo, but the point is, it's always interesting to me to think about these characters in concert with one another and mm-hmm. how Nick just kind of is like, okay, this sounds good. Let's go with it. That I'll throw it out there. I mean, I would not have the guts to do that if I were not certain, but. Then again, I'm not a white man in the (laughs) 1930s, so I can't say whether there was some (laughs) added confidence.
2: There's a, actually, you mentioning Colombo that also ties directly into Poker Face, which has been out recently. And I, and going through that, actually, she, uh, Natasha Lyonne does have a very Nick Charles-esque milieu around her in terms of like, how she goes through each of those cases while she's on the run is a very, like, is very much figuring it out and figuring the story like there's moments in that show where she is kind of it's a colombo move too but she is kind of going like i figure that you did this and this and she's using her ability to detect bullshit to figure it out if she got it right or wrong um and the only the way they change that up is there's people who are better liars in it than others um and so yeah it's got a definite nick charles vibe about it but the we'll throw
1: one more line in the middle there. L Woods. I mean, that's kind of mm. the entire courtroom scene of Legally Blonde. <laughs> we'll draw Columbo to L Woods, and then we'll move on to Poker Face. I mean, it's like, it's funny how that is a trope that really, because I think Poirot kind of set the template of, like, the big reveal. And mm-hmm. like, But he clearly knew what he was revealing. And I think Nick has kind of set this template of keep the big reveal, but make it so the guy's kind of like... Yeah, could be this. This sounds good. This is logical. Okay, let's just lay it out for everyone. And of course, I'm going to be right because it's a movie. And also, I would love to see someone be wrong. And also,
2: <laughs> and also, I get the I get the impression as Nick and Nora's characters that they enjoy fucking with people. And this is a oh, good God, yes. way to waste people's time. Like it's a very good way to waste people's time because. He builds it up. He puts everybody on edge. The moment he says anybody's name, they jump. Morelli, in particular, who is my favorite of the gangsterish characters in this movie. Um, yeah, he's
1: a good one. Yeah,
2: and actually, I love when he when he and um, Nunheim's gal are um, are just talking to each other, and then one of Nick's friends goes, "Have a cocktail." No, we're fine. I said, "Have a cocktail." I Think he wants <laughs> yes. us to have a cocktail? They look freaked out as all hell, but. The way he finally pulls the reveal, because everything he's saying does sound reasonable. And in fact, it's a storyteller's move and not a detective's move because he's going through the script and recalling for us what we have seen written on the page and how it lines up in a timeline. It does feel like you're watching somebody deconstruct the script. And the way he confronts Mimi and how it's revealed that Macaulay's behind it, it, it really like clarifies Mimi's character while at the same time finding out who the killer is. Um, he, it's just a wonderful, like he eggs her on to the point where she gives him up. That's kind of the beauty of what Nick does. He's sort of pushing people's buttons until he gets the response he wants. And I find that to be more so funny than thrilling. But that's kind of the reason why we've been talking, why, why, we, why would we want to talk about this film? It's a very funny movie first and a mystery movie second. And that that emphasis on comedy is such a strength in the corner of that scene, because that scene could be so boring and so stilted. But there's energy because of each performer and how Nick is toying with them. He's a little tipsy, but he's also focused. And Nora kind of giving sideline chatter which is like you're driving me crazy (laughs) like this is at this point it's just like i'm 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 just messing with you until i figure this out but also this is hilarious to me um and this allows the finale which is also another code driven um or a pre-code driven scene that i'm frankly shocked got in which is Dorothy and her fiance who is the most nameless character in this movie he's not yeah. a character he's a he's a walking plot device he's what everybody thinks Ken is in the uh in the <laughs> in a world before the Barbie movie um and uh they they retire to their birth and they're fighting about time zones which is great um yeah. and She says, throw in Asta here in bed with me. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he tosses Asta on the top berth. We know what's going to happen. And Asta does, too, because he circles around and covers his eyes. um, And we see a train just going off in the night. I'm like, that is incredible, because that seems like the scene that somebody at the Breen office would have been like, hold on. Hold on. You cannot implicate that they're having sex. At this point, and it's like, what are you talking about? There's just a shot of a dog. I didn't see nothing. Did you? <laughs> no, it's
1: true. It definitely feels like it's sort of touching the line. It's like, we how close can we get? And you have to wonder, given the circumstances of the film, given the nature of the film itself and how we've talked about how they like screwing with people, how much everyone involved in making this one was like how far can we push this before we start to get into trouble? And a year later, they would have been shut off. I mean, so many different places I can think of a year later where they would have not been able to do things. But at this point, everyone's still kind of feeling out mm-hmm. what the code is going to mean for them. And they got kind of they slid in at the right moment. They sort
2: that. of got grandfathered in. Yeah, this it's, it's very much a kind of like slide in at the last minute, because the code gets its teeth in April, really, that's when everything starts really packing yeah. heat. And And it's so weird, like actually the way I usually look at it is through the Marx Brothers because they made films from 29 to 33, take the whole year of 34 off and then they come back at MGM and suddenly the films are neutered and not, not anywhere close to their original material. With Nick and Nora, they slid in at the right moment where they, they had a one movie to figure out where the innuendos would work and not work. And then the formula, which MGM was very good at, became diluting it down more and more in each film. Yeah. By, by the time we get to the end of the series, it falls prey to something that I think happened to every comedy film series or star, which is at some point, every studio figured out the perfect formula for a comedy. And so identity is stripped away and it becomes about hitting particular uh, beats for story. Not marketing beats, but in a way, we know that this is what the audience wants. Um, J- Jack's, Jack's career has a lot to do with this, where he has identity in those early films, more or less. But he, by the 40s, he, it, they become very manufactured. To be or not to be is the only exception. Nick and Nora fall prey to that, too, because the yeah. films get goofier. And I don't hate that as a viewer. I, I genuinely love those sequels, no matter how lesser they get, because I like hanging out with those characters. But objectively, those gags just become far more broad and set piece driven. And it has nothing to do with those characters. Um, And so, like, it's kind of a blessing that they got this film and I think after The Thin Man as well to really work out the formula for success. And, you know, we don't talk a lot about how stars drive these movies often on this show because we do try to find something about the director that pertains to how the film's being shot and how there is an identity behind it with the person behind the camera. Woody Van Dyke has an identity, but I don't think it's as strong as the star power that he has on screen. I think he's just very smart at casting and getting a film done efficiently. Um, And that's kind of what separates him from a Clint Eastwood because at least Clint does have an identity. Whether you like it or not is up to you, (laughs) but he has an identity. And And that star power thing is something that I think we've talked a lot about how things like draw to the present with this film. But I think that the one thing we're finding nowadays is that with the exception of what's happened with the barb phenomenon, which I'm hoping researches this a little bit, the star system doesn't exist the same way it used to. Of course we are like, and I, I, I wanted to know what you, what your thoughts were on that in terms of like how it differs from then, because for me, it's just a matter of, at least for the last 10 years, IP has really driven the market and a movie star has been kind of irrelevant at this point. Um, But I feel like we still want that. Would you agree? Like, do we still want that? Or is it kind of just like, whatever?
1: Well, here's the problem. It's not that I think people don't want that. I think people... That's an idealized concept. And I think, in theory, we would like that. I think the challenge comes from the fact that entertainment in general is so stratified. You have YouTubers who have millions of followers and they're going right into people's houses for free day and night. I have no idea who most of them are. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people in the general public don't know who they are. And yet they're making millions of dollars and reaching tons of people. It's just not comparable anymore. And a movie star doesn't necessarily hold this cachet that we used to give it. It used to be a prestigious thing. Now movie stars want to do prestige Mm miniseries and people want to be in a Marvel movie or they want to do this. It's just, I think at a certain point, it's very hard to want. It's not that we don't want movie stars. It's that our world just doesn't fit them the same way. And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. I just think that's reality. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. But at the same time, Powell and Loy, were extraordinary together i mean they were both great separately but it was that together that made them so special and i think part of what made the series go on and on is people just wanted to see the two of them together and of course we i think there there are five thin man movies and there are eight total films with powell and loy so clearly it was a winning combination but it wasn't even just that they were stars it was that they had this it's kind of like again to bring Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone up again because they've both come up. Yeah, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are one of those couples that we see over and over. I'm trying to think of a handful of others. Um, I've seen this is not quite as dramatic, but I've seen Mary Steenburgen and um, Craig T. Nelson play spouses a couple times. Yeah. Um. I mean, you have these couples where you want to see them together. They just feel like a couple. And
2: I, I would throw in George Clooney and Julia Roberts. Like, oh God! Yes, yeah. of
1: course. Yes, yeah. that's such a good one. I mean. That's more significant to a lot of people, I think, than these – I mean, I mean, George Clooney and Julia Roberts are an exception.
2: Like, obviously, George Clooney and Julia
1: Roberts are George Clooney. They're like some of the last true movie stars.
2: Yeah. Um, or, but, or you know, like, there's, there's also male – like, buddy instances of this, too. Like, people still want to watch Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes hang around on a screen. Oh, um, yeah, ben, of course. Ben Affleck Always. and Matt Damon. I mean, I watch – I had no idea what air was about. All I know is I saw those two Boston boys back in business <laughs> and I'm like, cool, Prime, show me what I'm watching. But um, but yeah, uh, but yeah that, that concept of stardom, it made me think about something that we were going to touch on here, but you brought it up at the top, which is the remake idea. Because that idea was not only going to set to star Johnny Depp, but it was going to be directed by Rob Marshall. And that got me to thinking over time, it's not that I don't want that. It's just that I think one of the f- beautiful parts of cinema continuing and carrying on is that we find new ideas and those actors fit the idea of their time. So like, if you're going to tell me I'm going to get another pirates movie, that makes sense. Cause Johnny Depp's really good at that part. Now, can he bring the same magic as William Powell and with whoever would have played Nora? I don't know because they were very good at it and it might be even better to just say, make a Thin Man type movie and draw center it around this kind of couple that heavily imbibes what solves a mystery. It's kind of like Knives Out works better for me than the Kenneth Branagh po- Poirot films. Um, I'd rather watch a new character doing an Agatha Christie mystery than watching Kenneth Branagh put that tail on his face and it's and it's not to say that he doesn't make fun movies with them like I liked Murder on the Orient Express the remake it was very well done and well put together but I my interest point lies with give me a new detective and I think that the legacy of Powell and Loy is that 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 remake never went through and I think at a certain point it broke down to the point of Maybe it's schedules, maybe it's scripting, but I think more so scripting, because if you can't crack a script that can match what they did in 1934, you're in for trouble and people are going to give you shit for it. And I think at some point somebody said this isn't worth pursuing anymore. Um, Well, and
1: I'll tell you, I am a big Rob Marshall fan. He does incredible work with mm -hmm. big budgets and it's glitzy and it's over the top. And of course, at about that point 2010 2011 that's when johnny depp did the lone ranger which was i think the first film to have a nine-figure budget which is now like standard operating <laughs> procedure for big studio films yeah i don't love the idea of nick and nora as this big budget glitzy blockbuster and i feel like part of you said earlier have fun with it that was i think a big part of what made this movie special was they had this very tight timeline and they just ran with it mm-hmm. i think turning it into this big budget extravaganza is not in keeping with the spirit of the movie. And in fact, I would argue that if you're gonna remake The Thin Man, which I'm already not thrilled about the idea of remaking The Thin Man, it would make more sense to work with comedy people. People who have a background in improv or sketch comedy who understand that rhythm and that flow and can just kind of put the movie out there. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I don't want to see like Larry David. Oh, I take that back. I would see Larry David's (laughs) The Thin Man. If Larry David wants to remake The Thin Man, as far as I'm concerned, I will buy a ticket to see that in a theater. But.
2: Just <laughs> fixates on somebody's suit the entire time as he's trying. Well, I could just to. picture
1: him being like, eh, I don't feel like getting involved in a mystery. <laughs> no, oh, I'm good. no they're
2: just... too messy. There's too, ma- yeah. too much of a messy thing, Cheryl. I'm not getting into it. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, exactly. your name's Nora, not Cheryl. My bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, see, I, I, might, I might go for that. But generally speaking, I feel like, I think you're right also. I think... And I remember being there at Murder on the Orient Express and thinking, this just feels very dark. And I feel like part of what, not even just physically dark, which a lot of movies today are way too dark, but that's a side (laughs) issue. Um, But just there's some, there's a heaviness to it. And I feel like when you think about the sort of slapdash days of filmmaking back in the golden age, there was not this out of control budgeting where you have, I mean, everything costs a ton of money, takes a ton of time, requires a ton of effort, has all these effects. I don't need effects for a film like Murder on the Orient Express, just get me on the train, get me feeling in the world and then put everyone on. I mean, when they got on that cliffside or whatever in the snow and they're all like there for their dressing down and Michelle Pfeiffer's pulling off her wig. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this movie for anyone, but I'm just like this scene. And I love Kenneth Branagh. I think Belfast a couple years ago was one of my favorite films of that particular little period. He is fantastic. I just think Poirot is. A character who and that's part of why I think Benoit Blanc hits so well, because it carried over that familiar trope, but it took a whole new spin on it and let's be honest it was also nice to see Daniel Craig playing so against type and to see his range as an actor because for years for everyone he was just Bond and now suddenly it's like oh no no wait he's really funny and he <laughs>
2: and he got that he got a little uh, mid uh, midway training with Logan Lucky um, where he um, he's part of the heist team in Logan Lucky by Soderbergh and he I
1: forgot about that movie oh my god yeah okay. I'll <laughs>
2: never forget that movie because that was the first time where I'd really see him do that southern fried accent I'm like oh he's yes. going to be fine as a detective but but, you know, like, I think what we're getting at and a, and a good way to wrap this up is that we are we are dealing with something unique. And most films, when they succeed, is because they have a unique identity. Um, it's not a denigration against Marvel or even DC at this point. It is just no. a matter of like, and the example is like, if you're going to remake Iron Man, it's going to be tough to top Robert Downey Jr. Because he made that role work. Um, and I don't think that like that's why it's smarter to just go down the Iron Heart route rather than recast the character of Tony Stark Um, or like reinvent it, so to speak there. An actor's strength is then they get to create the character and it is their creation. Some things fall through the cracks. Like I can easily deal with another Sherlock Holmes or a Frankenstein monster or a Dracula, but Nick and Nora are, are one of a one of a kind trope that I'm not opposed to you remaking it, but I'd rather you maybe take a Nick and Nora esque situation and create something new out of it. Because there's nothing wrong with homage. Quentin Tarantino has made his career off of this. So it, it there is like a benefit to watching this film, though, and taking little bits and bobs of it, like maybe I don't want to tell a mystery story. Maybe I want to tell a story about a very cool married couple who just happens to solve mysteries because they just happen to solve things. <laughs> like,
1: Or in- even thinking sort of between and around the Nick and Nora story, because there really is only one book and the movies extend that world a little bit, but there is so much room for like, what is life like for Nick and Nora in a different situation? And to explore that in a film. And a lot of people have used the sort of Nick and Nora convention to create couples. I think they also would make a great side couple in a larger story. Yeah. I would argue that Amy Sherman Palladino would do brilliant work with a Nick and Nora type story or She rest in peace. Nora Ephron would have done something incredible with that kind of couple. Oh. Yes. Another one who went to my high school. I went to a pretty cool high school, I guess. Mm-hmm. I went to Beverly Hills High School. So we had a that. few couple of notable people. Actually, I'll tell you really quickly, which has nothing to do with anything. When we had the hundredth anniversary of the city, Betty White went to Beverly and grew up in Beverly Hills. So she came to lead us in the Beverly High fight song. And I got to write her speech. So I actually my first professional writing gig was writing for Betty White. Oh, because that's that, fucking dope.
2: Oh, it was that's amazing. Awesome.
1: And she was everything you would have dreamed Betty White was. And then some she was really a special lady. But um, yeah, I went to a pretty cool high school. But the point is. There are so many people who can tell that kind of story without having to literally say, here are Nick and Nora Charles. Mm -hmm. Let's put them and this horribly dysfunctional white family and a couple other people together and call it the thin man returns or the thin man 2.0 or just we don't need that. We need new stories. And look at again, we'll go back to Barbenheimer because it's the thing of the moment. Yes, Barbie is an existing IP, but it was the first time it was anything like this. Oppenheimer is based on a true story, but it was a complete to most audience members, it was a new story, yes. or at least a story yeah. they didn't really. I had one guy say to me, "I didn't realize going in that it was a real story." I was like, "Where? Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Whatever works, if, as long as you." Oh, left, I want to
2: meet this guy.
1: <laughs> well, it's like the people who leave Titanic. Every time they re-release Titanic, there are people who tweet, "Did you know Titanic really happened?" And I think like, we need to teach better history in our
2: schools. <laughs> You know what? That's maybe that's how Ocean Gate was allowed to happen. People forgot that the Titanic was an actual accident.
1: <laughs> well and I'll tell you, I was saying at the time of Ocean Gate, the Ocean Gate incident, I was like, thank God they named their company Ocean Gate. They knew a scandal was coming, Ocean Gate. They threw <laughs> Gate on the end of it anyway. <laughs> they which did is like their the homework? morbid humor they did <laughs> the, the, the morbid approach of course it's extremely oh, dark humor and we, what happened was tragic But we,
2: we are failing James Cameron by the way we've introduced AI and a new Titanic disaster in the span of months we are failing this man
1: Each tried well, to I just, tell us did you read uh, in this sort of strike thing Avatar the next three Avatar films have all had their releases pushed I was like One got pushed into like 2033 or something. I was like, we're planning movies for 2033 now. Okay, if you say so. I did not, I don't even know what the...
2: We might give him his best directing Oscar posthumously. That will be amazing.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, it's like 2033. So that means that if you were born when Avatar came out in 2008, you will be 25 years old. You will have a job. You could have a child of your own to take to the new Avatar movie. I mean, like, at a certain point, you have to wonder what in... and, And my sister has a friend who actually worked on... Avatar 2, somewhere in the intervening period, because he was in high school, I guess. No, he was in middle school when Avatar came out. He worked for James Cameron, worked on this film, was out of there before the movie even came out. I mean, it's, it's kind of nuts when you start to think about how drawn out the Avatar process is. And you have to wonder at a certain point, Is this a genius marketing strategy? Because every time one of them comes out, people are like, it's Avatar again. Or is this a ridiculous marketing strategy? Because will anyone care about a planet of blue people when we ourselves need to find something like that so that we can get off this dying planet? I mean, it's like you just you have to wonder.
2: I I hope that the final film surprises everybody. And it's just it's just a series of sock puppets and not the CGI. Like, that would be amazing to me. Oh,
1: I'm totally down (laughs) for Avatar with sock puppets. As far as I'm concerned, we do not utilize our, you know, easy to deal with effects.
2: No, no. Oh, but what's funny is that, like, we we just talked about a film that didn't need any effects beyond what is practically in front of us. And one of those uh, elements is lighting James Wong yeah. Howe's cinematography in here, which we 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 can give a nod to here. It's some of the best mystery mystery looking uh, mystery aesthetic films I've ever seen from this period, because it's not a constant crank out at this point. Really, the Maltese Falcon sets a lot of the standard for what we're going to see in the 40s. But the Thin Man, another Hammett property, is leading that charge early on because when he's in Wynett's building, it's one of the most beautifully shot sequences in the movie because it's super dark so that you can feel that uncertainty that he's feeling, but it's lit just enough so that you understand that he's there and that Asta's there. It's a It's a very perfect balance from a lighting scheme and a lighting spectrum. And I think that that, That magic supersedes any form of special effects that you could have shoved into this film for whatever purpose. Like, like, there and like, and like seeing like rotating newspapers, that's a practical effect. I always love that in a movie. Um, There is one insert that is a cool little practical effect, which is they clearly reversed the shot of a net going across the United States to search for Winnet. And I was just like, that. That was an idea that somebody on cocaine had, and I love it. Um, but <laughs> the but all of these things we've been talking about, we we just talked about Avatar, which is taking forever to finish up its its legacy. This is shot in 18 days. They made these films whenever whenever schedules allowed or when MGM really wanted them. They ended it arguably when they needed to, because Powell and Loy probably wouldn't have been. As box office hit a couple by that mm-hmm. point, so they they ended. I would argue on a high note, but they but they've always gone back to this one film here, which managed to capture uh, like the the proper amount of seediness with the proper amount of heart warmth. And I don't think that every film we get along today has matched this, but we do find different versions of it as time goes along, whether it's in a mystery film. Or in a rom-com, frankly. Um, Like, Nora Ephron, you mentioned. Like, I would have loved to see her do The Thin Man. Probably more than Rob Marshall. Uh, That would have been a lot more accessible to me. I could have get behind that. Because that's a very singular, creative voice that would have an edge on this based on her prior work. Um, But thankfully, the Nick and Nora element has become a trope itself. Yes. And I think what it's done instead of directly influencing work strictly in mystery is that it's become a trope that every comedy writer would want to aspire to if they're going to make a movie about a married couple or a dating couple, whatever it is. Everybody wants to say, I'm as good as the people who made The Thin Man in 1934. They really want to hit that watermark. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. But I love that people will look at that film like we did this this week and chatting about it And go, I would love to try that. I would love to try to be as good as that. And I want to thank you, Victoria, for sitting down to talk about The Thin Man with us. And for giving a lot of good perspective, not just from the production, but from the book as well. And really, giving this is the second Hammett discussion we've had this year. And I've loved kind of getting to look at the diametric opposition between this and the Maltese Falcon. And how they operate. So thank you so much for bringing this to the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun.
2: And really really quickly, let people know where can they find you? Where where can they watch your work and enjoy your and, and enjoy what you're up to right now? Please tell us.
1: The best place to find me is on my website, which is the the word the victoriagordon.com. Mm-hmm. And everything you could possibly want is there, and if it's not, you can always email me through the website and I will find a way to get you what I somehow have managed to neglect putting on my website. <laughs>
2: Uh, I I appreciate that. And you're on part of no soap radio, which can be accessed through YouTube. And um, I will say this on a personal note. Um, I talked about that trip earlier. I did see your grandfather there at the cemetery where Jack was as well. And I told you this back then. And I will tell you this now, especially and even more so after what we've just discussed. I think your grandfather would be very proud of how you've kept uh, uh, one foot in the past and one foot put, foot in the future. I think he would be extremely proud of you because you you understand not just how to break down a film, you understand how to break down comedy. And that's a rare gift. Not everybody can do that. And I really, really think he'd be amazed, amazed by what you've accomplished and what you'll continue to accomplish.
1: Well, thank you. And I'll tell you, he died when I was 18. So I was very lucky to get to spend a lot of time with him, to learn from him, and I know when he died, he knew where I was headed and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It's not like some of my grandparents, I'm like, darn it, they, I wish they had seen more of where I was headed in my life. But he definitely caught me at a time when it was clear the path I was on, that I was moving towards comedy, that I was working in a direction that would have been similar to his, only distinctly different because radio was really not a thing. But at the same time, I know that he knew what was going on. And that's something that I've always been very proud to say that he knew what was going, where I was headed in my life.
2: Yep. And I can tell you right now that he's still watching down and watching your incredible work. Hopefully he was okay with all the cursing that I did on this show today. Um.
1: Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> that man was, my, what I'll tell you was really funny is my mom met a woman who was a friend of my aunt's in high school. And she was like, I used to go to the Gordons every weekend. And my mom said, oh my gosh, tell me what they were like. I'm so curious to know. And she said. The four of them were like a group of sailors. She said foul <laughs> language just and this was in like the 60s and early 70s. She's like just these people had no regard if people come over whatever they they were dirty in their language, and I was like, "Wow, that was not the answer I was expecting." But apparently, that's what stood out to this woman from her teenage years: is the Gordons have foul mouths. So. In,
2: in, in a lot, in a lot of ways, you could probably say that yeah, that that the Gordon household was probably no different than the Charles household. A, a oh, it totally
1: wasn't. I mean, lots of alcohol from the adults, and lots of witty banter, and there were two children there who probably, you know, someone had to watch at some <laughs> point. So. <laughs>
2: They just, let I'll you, leave it at that. they just let you wa- listen and then read a transcript later.
1: <laughs> Something like that.
2: Well, thank you so much, Victoria. I definitely want to have you back on anytime, any film, any it. radio show. You just let me know you're back on here instantly. It's, it was such Do a it. treat talking with you. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yes, you Your Here Review. You can find out more about us on the back of the show. Coming up on the program, we did mention Titanic <laughs> near the end of this discussion. Um, but... Did you know that there are a bunch of Titanic films before James Cameron let us know our heart will go on? That's right. I am bringing back Zach Bynes from Talk and Troma to talk about his other favorite obsession that isn't Francis the Mule, and that is Titanic. Um, so we're going to sit down with a couple of different Titanic pieces. Um, that's going to be an interesting discussion to say the least. And if you've heard the Francis the Mule episode, you know how dirty it might get, <laughs> so be prepared for a less than PG-13 discussion. Um, and additionally, we are going to be tackling things regarding the strike um, and how there's a history of this. We are going to be doing Salt of the Earth with Marshall Rosales. Um, this is a film that was centered around blacklisted um, a- actors and directors and how they handled a labor strike uh, in dramatic fashion. And the story of this has been proving to be very eye-opening, especially to what we're dealing with today. Um, And sort of in tandem with the strike and blacklisting at large, we're going to be tackling Roman Holiday, uh, Dalton Trumbo's uh, epic masterpiece that he didn't get credit for until years later. Um, So settle in for that and so much more. And stay tuned for the Ballyboo. We're going to be having a whole month of horror, three titles up at the front. I'm going to tell you what they are right this minute. Victoria, are you ready for this?
1: Oh, am I? (laughs) <laughs> the,
2: the Wolfman, Vampire, and the Old Dark House. And we're going to have a mystery program at the end of the month to send everybody off in glorious, horrified fashion. We're going to have some fun here on this show, guys. But until all of that, and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod and now on threads under the same handle. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our introductions were done by Henry Jarvis. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Jack Benny who follows immediately after station identification.